The American auto industry has been through a lot in the last few years, and there still is a lot of turmoil before the situation improves. But at some point, it will improve, and we're going to see the good times roll again. So what kind of turmoil is still facing us in the future? What do we need to get through it? And how good could things get once we get through it all? Well, that's why I've invited John Hoffaker, the managing director of the automotive practice at Alex Partners, to join us this morning. Alex Partners is a company that specializes in turning problem companies around and getting them back on their feet again. As you can well imagine, business has been pretty good for them of late, and they've had a front row seat at the meltdown we've seen in the automotive industry. Also joining us this morning are Tom Walsh, a columnist with the Detroit Free Press, and Alex Ortolani with Bloomberg News. If you want to learn how the auto industry is going to navigate through the treacherous waters for the next few years, don't go away. We'll be back right after this. From our studios in the Motor City, this is AutoLine. Here now is John McElroy. Welcome to this edition of AutoLine Detroit with our special guest today, John Hoffaker, the Managing Director of Alex Partners. Great having you here on the set of AutoLine, John. Thank you, John. Also joining us this morning is Alex Ortolani from Bloomberg. Great having you here, Alex. And Tom Walsh from the Free Press. Welcome back, Tom. Thanks, John. Let's jump right into what we want to talk about. And there's a whole bunch of things that we want to talk about here, John. But you gave a speech up at the management briefing seminars in early August where you talked about the auto industry's only gone halfway through this impact of globalization, which made my hair stand on end. It's been bad enough as it is. We're only halfway. What do you mean by that? The title of the speech was Top, the Continuing Restructuring of the Industry, Top of the Fifth Inning. And what I meant by that is, my view is we've been in the middle of restructuring the automotive industry for about 25 years. And I view we've got about 25 more years to go. When you look at the changes that have happened over the last set of decades with competition really coming into the American market and really expanding around the globe in a way never had happened before, Many, many years ago, 50s, 60s, 70s, it was really the Japanese were in Japan, the Europeans were in Europe, the U.S. manufacturers were in the U.S. And really what's happened over the last 25 years is a major change in the way that people compete. And so the best of the world are going everywhere in the world, and that's putting huge pressure, whether you're a supplier, whether you're a manufacturer, on the weaker ones that are there. Well, what's your future for not just the American auto industry, but let's bore down into Southeast Michigan, where we're all based here. Do we have another 25 years of devastation in front of us, or have we made progress here? Well, if you look at other industries as case studies, and whether it's textile or shipbuilding, whatever, industries that, in fact, have gone through globalization ahead of us, there's still going to be a lot of challenges for many of the companies that are out there. The positive side of the story is, as it is in every other industry, is the top 25% of the suppliers are going to do very well and are doing very well, in fact, through this. If you look back to 1993 and you break down the top 25% of the suppliers and you hold them constant, those ones are doing as well as ever. And in fact, last year, that supply base in 08 did better than they did the year before. The bottom 25% of the suppliers are the ones getting hurt significantly. And the reality is it's similar to when we used to work in a city or a county and you had a grocery store or a gas station, and then what happened is it became countywide or statewide or countrywide. 
We're now to a point where your game as a supplier and OEM has to be as good as anybody in the world. And we've had the Japanese, the Europeans, the Koreans come to the U.S. and we've gone there. And in the next decade, we're going to see the Chinese come here. At some point, the Indians will come here. And who knows will come here after there. And it's going to affect everybody. From a consumer standpoint, it's the best thing you could ask for. When you look at the cost of education, you look at the cost of medical care, since 93, those prices have doubled. Price of a car in that time frame is flat. You're getting a higher quality product, less warranty claims, better fit, better finish, more power for the same price. And so what globalization does in one sense can hurt companies, but the good ones are continuing to grow. They've doubled their sales, most of them in the last 10 years. When you look at the challenging ones, the reality is their game isn't where it needs to be, and in a sense, the industry doesn't need them. I wonder if I can ask on that, that point, John, with suppliers. I mean, no one likes to see the job losses from bankruptcies and liquidations, but do you think there have been enough sort of, uh, you know, whether it's bankruptcies or, or liquidations among the suppliers during this crisis? I mean, the idea of taking advantage of the crisis, taking out some of the overcapacity, has there been enough, or are we sort of setting up for this continued burn we've seen right. you know, almost two decades? Two points I'd make on that. First point is, is when you look at the profitability of suppliers, it is directly correlated to what you say, which is how well capacity is utilized. Meaning, if I've got a certain amount of capacity as a supplier, and I use it a lot, I keep that equipment running eight hours, 16 hours a day, five, seven days a week, I make a lot of money. When I don't, which is the position we find ourselves in today when we're not making 17 million cars, we're making 10 million cars. Every one of the suppliers out there is having a real struggle, as the OEMs are. The challenge we see is, is that the capacity really has not been taken out of the supply base yet across the board. And so until that capacity comes out, if all you do is you trade this capacity to a different owner, but you haven't taken the capacity out, you really are going to have an impact on the profitability of suppliers. So when you look at the top suppliers, they've used this downturn, I think many of them, very smartly. And they are, I think, going to be coining money in the next few years because they've been very aggressive, ahead of the curve in rationalizing their capacity. The real problem is many of the people who are in trouble didn't want to take the restructuring charges, didn't have the cash to be able to do what they needed to, and so they haven't. And so we're seeing this real, where performance 10 years ago was where the two were moving like this, we're now seeing performance at the top continue to be good, but the bottom is going like this. And we're also seeing that bottom 25% not get as many orders from their customers, the OEMs, because they're not viewed as low risk anymore because of the problems we've had with some of the bankruptcies and liquidations and the challenges that's offered. So in general, the top 25, I think, have been doing all the right things, many of the right things to take capacity out, rationalize it. The real problem has been on the other end of the marketplace for that, and it's why we continue to see this challenge between the two, and we're going to see the challenge for that bottom 25 continue. Talk a little bit about the OEMs, John. The, the, the globalization period over 20, 30 years that you alluded to, we saw General Motors and Ford and Chrysler kind of <coughs> bump along, mostly downward during that period. And then, obviously, the, the global meltdown pushed uh, GM and Chrysler right to the, to the very brink and into 
bankruptcy in Ford almost. Right. Um, and I've, I've analogized this in, in columns to saying, you know, these boats were virtually capsized. They brought two of them into, into harbor, did, you know, patched them up real quick, and now they're sending them back out to right. sea. And are they seaworthy? Right. And wh- how, when will we know how seaworthy General Motors and Chrysler are when, they're, when they have to float back in the turbulent seas? Sure. Let me, let me talk about that in a couple of ways. If you take a look back, we had had a very protected market for many years in the U.S. We always viewed it was very open, but in the majority of the case, the vehicles that the OEMs in the U.S. made all of their money were on were vehicles that no one else made around the world. So the big SUVs, the pickups and so on, it was really the golden goose egg of the entire world from a profitability standpoint. You'd be making $15,000 contribution on each vehicle as an example. And so even up to the 95 to 2000 timeframe, GM and Ford made more money than all other OEMs around the world combined, as recently as that because there was so much money to be made in those vehicle sets. Today, we have 115 SUVs and crossovers in the American marketplace. And the thing that you find is when all of the other manufacturers came into the U.S., what they did is they initially came with their world product, the Accords, the Civics, the Camrys, and so on. But then they grew into going after the other profit areas. And so what happened as a part of that is, whenever you add a new entrant into a marketplace, there's only two things that ever happen. You lose market share or you lose profit. Normally you lose both. And so that's what we saw. So over time, what had happened is we had three OEMs in the U.S., very strong profits. And in fact, what they had built is health care, retiree benefits, and so on, that were on the average of about $1,500 per vehicle. Now, this is a world where you try to make about $1,000 a vehicle, and that's good. Mm -hmm. Last year, we made about $200 a vehicle globally. So normally, you look at about $1,000 a vehicle, call it 5%. Well, we started in a hole. When the global competition came in here, they didn't have the retiree benefits. They didn't have the defined benefits programs you in a sense did not have a level playing field. And so that $1,500 disadvantage, you needed to get it to relatively level. And what I view the current restructuring has done is got it to be relatively level versus the rest of the field. And now, how long will it take to figure out whether they can compete? I think it's gonna be a few years to be able to tell. In the end, with a level playing field, What will define it is the product, as it's always been. And we'll see who has the most interesting products. Is it going to be Ford? Is it going to be Chrysler with Fiat? Is it going to be GM? And we'll see. But right now, I would argue, they've been giving a new life, in a sense, a redo. To be able to get rid of much of what America had allowed them to have over time by not being a global player. And in many ways, what this did is set the game start again. And at this point in time, level playing field, let's wait three, four years and see. At that point in time, we'll see a bunch of new products have hit the ground, how how Americans like the new products that are out there, and that'll be a good, interesting piece to look at. You you mentioned SUVs and trucks, and now uh, the automakers are banking on smaller vehicles, and especially Chrysler and Fiat. Right. Is that a realistic assumption, or are we still going to see trucks and SUVs popular in the U.S., and are we going to see this Fiat deal 
crumble because of that? Is that a risk? I, I think what Americans buy will be defined by a number of pieces. One is what gas prices do. We saw last summer as an example, full-size trucks, SUVs, people, you couldn't give them away. Used car prices were down 40% in that, that side of the market. If you wanted to try to sell an SUV last year, pickup truck last year, you got hammered. Small cars were getting premiums versus the year before on that. Used cars, you weren't getting discount. You look at it today, it's reversed, mm-hmm. right? Small cars are 10%. You, 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 if you're selling a small car today, you're getting 10% less than you did last year. You're getting 40% more on a pickup and an SUV. And so tell me what gas prices are going to do. That'll be a good indication. Tell me what government policy wants it to be, as an example, fuel economy, cafe, and so on, and that'll define a lot of it. And so the consumer itself tends to buy very rationally based on whatever it is that they're given. Tends to be gas prices were allowing them to be able to do that. People wanted bigger vehicles. So if gas wasn't a key contributor, they would buy the big vehicles. With what's happening now with fuel economy standards and moving to more of a California-like proposition, we're going to see a general push to you know, many years ago, you had SUVs, pickups, small cars, all about the same sales levels. What happened in the U.S. is we saw small cars go down as a percentage. We saw SUVs, pickups go up. And I think naturally what we're going to see is those ones come back. Now, when you take a look at the Americans as an example, a number of them, like Ford as an example and GM, have very strong capabilities as an example around the world, as Fiat does now, which is what's adding the Chrysler. The real interesting thing will be is kind of everybody's running to that same base. And who will win that battle in many ways is going to be defined by the product again. Do people love the 500 that Fiat's bringing over, the Focus? that Ford has as an example, the crews that GM's bringing over. Which of those win? I think many of them stand up very, very well to the competitors out of Korea and Japan, but in the end, the consumer will define it. Going back to a little bit of a a takeoff of Tom's question here, do the big three have the management talent in place? Let's specifically talk about General Motors. They've gotten rid of a lot of good people, which they had to do. Obviously, it's a downsized company. Do they have the management team in place that's needed to come out with this great product? And as a corollary to that, we saw the GM board, the new GM board, essentially reject management's suggestion of selling part of Opel to Magna and and told them, no, go back to Europe and negotiate a better deal. So two questions there. Does GM have the management, and what do you make of this newly assertive board at GM? Well, I think GM's management can be very strong, and time will tell with how they work together as a team. But I look at the individual players there, whether it's Fritz Henderson on the top or their, their development team, now Bob Lutz in marketing, and I think they've got a very strong team overall. In the end, you look at the products that they brought out recently, whether it's a CTS, the Lambda-based platforms, which are the large kind of crossover vehicles, and they've hit the market very well. Malibu, very strong product. The crews coming over from Europe, which I'm a big fan of, I think they've got a good set of products and a strong management team there. But all the other OEMs around town, I think there's good management generally in the teams that we've got there. From the standpoint of a stronger board, um, 
the, the decision will be weighed in the end on how that, that works itself out. Having strong management, another point of view, I think is a good thing uh, in any one of the companies that are out there. And GM's management board and the new board that's there, I think will do a great job for them. Are the lifespans shorter for, for some of the top managers, though? I mean, is more being asked of, say, Fritz Henderson? I think if you look across almost any industry today in this global market, the tenure of most executives can be relatively short. It is a very tough position to be in in any one of these areas. If you look in Europe right now, they're going from the standpoint of of taking in three years, they're reducing the liquidity of the OEMs over there by $72 billion. They have major struggles over in Europe, and you're going to see changes in Europe. You're going to see them over in the U.S., and you've seen them in Japan also with some of the what we're seeing as the strongest players there. I think across the board, it is a high visibility job. It is a very competitive market around the world, and management is, uh, has got lots of visibility on them, and what you're going to see is the boards and the shareholders wanting change probably faster than ever as the game continues to get tougher. And, and talk a little bit more about the role of government here. We've seen in the, in the Opel example that John just brought up, a lot of this is the German government really wants the Magna deal because they, they promised the most jobs will be retained. Right. In the United States, we got you know the government owning 61% of GM, a slice of Chrysler. Right. Um, and a lot of people think government bad, government can't run things. On the other hand, I, I for one, was pretty darn impressed with what the auto task force with no auto people on it, did in a fairly short frame of time. Do, what, what's your sort of grade that, that you give them on, on what they did? The auto task force overall, I completely agree with you, came in here in a very businesslike way, got assimilation of all the facts, I think came to quick decisions, and if you look at both Chrysler and GM moving in and out of bankruptcy as fast as they did, 39 days at General Motors for as large and complex of an organization it is, is astonishing. If you had done an over-under ahead of this, <laughs> uh, the minimum would have been nine months, and most people were thinking a couple of years, and if you think of the impact either Chrysler or GM would have had by having that long in bankruptcy, they would have seen many consumers who were in the buying cycle, in fact, move away from them because of the stigma that bankruptcy could bring with it. As opposed to that and how it was handled, how quickly it went through, the reality is they had two months or a month and a month and a half where people maybe had some questions, but then they quickly moved out of it. So I give them a lot of credit for what they did. They appointed, I think, very strong individuals. They came to decisions. They worked their tails off and uh, now have moved on a number of them to other things, and I give them a lot of credit for it. How do you look at uh, automakers in other areas, notably Europe and Japan? To your point, we've cleaned out a lot of the legacy costs, almost right. all of them. We've taken out a tremendous amount of capacity in this industry right. in the U.S., permanently taken it out. Right. Also reduced, in the case of General Motors and Chrysler, a huge number of retailers, dealers as right. well. I don't see that happening in Japan nor in Europe. In no, fact, I was reading this week that Toyota alone may have three million units of overcapacity globally, right. which is larger than Chrysler is. What's your assessment of how the Europeans and the Japanese have addressed this restructuring or they, not? Well, if you look at Europe, round numbers, they've done one-third of the amount of capacity takeout of the OEMs is what the U.S. has. If you look at Japan, they haven't even started. 
And so it's very, very different in each one of the segments. Japan has always been an export economy. They, they, it'll be interesting to see with whether all the capacity is coming out of the remote locations. There was a news article today that the UK, Toyota was considering closing down some capacity in the UK. Are they going to take it out of Japan? Or are they going to take it out of other places in the world? But in general, the US took much more capacity out, which if they can keep the, pro the sales where they hope they will be, they will come out of this better than anybody because they have rationalized the capacity. Their capacity utilization will go up faster. They can do much better because of those tough choices they've made. Europe, much less so, a third of the restructuring that was done in the U.S., and over in Japan, much less than even that. So things might bode well for the Detroit automakers and their suppliers. If consumers... If the market comes back. If the market comes back. Our view is there is some pent-up demand there this year with the Cash for Clunkers program and others. We'll be in the 10 somewhere. Next year, we believe it'll probably be about 11 and a half or 12 as an example. There's a lot of rental car commercial fleet, maybe upwards of a million units that probably should be bought next year. The people have been pushing off because of the economy economy, we see that it can come back as an example here. But in the end, what it'll define is, do people love the new cruise that's coming out? Do people really want the Taurus? Are people looking at the new Ram and buying that again because of gas prices, whatever? That will define it. And whoever wins that battle, if they can keep their market share or in fact gain it, they will do very, very well as volumes come back. And I don't think there's anybody out there that thinks we're not going to go back up. Our view is, we don't think it's going to be going back to the 16, 17 million units. It's probably more like the 15, 16 million units. So we're not going to go back. The new normal will be down a bit from where they are. But the rationalization of capacity that's happened at Chrysler, at Ford, and at GM bodes very well for when those volumes come back. And on cash for clunkers, do you expect uh, that to keep sales going this year? Or do you think it is more of a pull forward on sales that we're going to see tail off? toward the end? I think the cash for clunkers overall was a very good idea. If you think about ways to stimulate the economy, to me it's one of the better ones for a couple of reasons. It will get people into the showroom that wouldn't have been there naturally. It does, from an environmental standpoint, take the older, much heavier polluting vehicles off the road and puts in new vehicles. And so there's certainly some pull ahead that's been done. There are about 690,000 vehicles that were sold under the cash for clunkers. A portion of those certainly were pull ahead, and we'll see somewhat of the impact of that, I think, in the fourth quarter. But a lot of those sales were people both in the new car market, frankly, it pulled people into the used car market also, that this excitement, this focus on cars got people into the showroom that wouldn't have been there naturally anyway. And a few years down the road, uh, last question, John. Well, are we very quickly, we're down to the end here. Um, yeah. Do you see the, the industry transforming fundamentally uh, anytime soon toward electric vehicles or you know, non-fossil fuel vehicles? To me, electric, the, the electrification of the vehicle is absolutely where we're headed. Electric wheel ends, what you see on the Volt is an example where the entire vehicle runs on electricity. It's not a backup to a gasoline engine, but the gas engine may back up electricity is absolutely where we're going. The only question in my mind is the cost of it getting in line. Once we get the cost in line and we get the recharge cycles down to where it's there's some on the drawing boards now where you'll be able to recharge the entire vehicle pack in four minutes. If you can get to the point where the cost 
for the lithium batteries or the next generation come down and you can get the speed of recharge down to a point where it's minutes, I think it will absolutely be where we'll be going from the vehicle standpoint. And on that note, we're going to have to wrap up the broadcast version of the show. We're going to leave these cameras rolling. I've got some more questions for John that we're going to jump over to the Internet. And uh, before we go, I want to thank all of you for having joined us here for this discussion. And I'll be back in a moment with some closing thoughts. As I mentioned, we're going to run the cameras and continue the conversation. You can catch that right now at our website at AutolineDetroit.tv. And if you need more than a weekly dose of industry information, check out AutolineDaily.com. It's a six-minute daily webcast of what's going on in the global automotive industry. But that wraps up this show. For all of us here at AutoLine Detroit, thanks for watching. We'll see you next week.